Good morning. This is the Word of God. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Hey, church family. Glad to have this opportunity to open God's word together and to uh, encounter the grace and the goodness of God in these pages. If you're new or just happen to be joining us, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors of Sound City Bible Church. And, uh, you know, today I am both joyful and I'm grieving I'm joyful because it's always a good thing to get to open the scriptures, to get to open the word of God and and see what he has for us. But I'm also grieving just over the state of affairs in our world right now and in the United States of America in particular, as there are uh, sins of racism being brought to the light in just a new and, and stark sort of way. And there's all sorts of uh, protests that are, you know, uh, done in a good way, but there's all sorts of like rioting and looting that's done in a sinful way. And not to mention the fact that we're coming off of a three-month shutdown for a global pandemic. It's just a weighty, weighty season in our nation's history, in our world's history. And, and, and actually, as we dive into the book of Job today, this book could not come at a more relevant and more perfect time. You know, I started reading the book of Job uh, right around the beginning of the year, and I finished it up in February, maybe early March. I was kind of reading through it slowly, and and I started just having my heart stirred, like, man, it would be great to go through the book of Job. And I talked to my wife about it back then. I could not have imagined. I mean, this was pre-COVID. This was pre-racial you know, uh, uh, racial injustices, and this was pre-riots. This was pre-murder hornets. This was pre-everything. I was thinking, boy, it'd be probably pretty good to go through the book of Job and started making an outline and started jotting down notes. And I had no idea just how relevant to us in this moment the book of Job would be. And so if you'll let me, before I pray and we dive in specifically to this week's passage, let me just share a few things about the book of Job in general, kind of an overview of the book and an overview of where we're going in this series. First of all, let me just say this simply, like the authorship, who wrote the book of Job we don't know. And in fact, not only do we not know, we have no idea. Scholars have no idea. And, and they kind of go back and forth on how early it was written versus how late it was written. And, and, and just simply, we're not entirely sure. What we do know is that whoever wrote the book of Job and however it was compiled and comes to us in its final form, it is the product of some incredible literary imagination. The the style of the book of Job, there's some story at the beginning, some narrative, and a little bit of story at the end. 
But most of the book of Job is a series of dialogues. If, if some of you have ever had to read Plato's Republic, you'll know what I mean by dialogues. There's a series of conversations, but they're not just dialogues. It's not just like back and forth. It's intentionally crafted dialogue, poetic dialogue. In fact, Christopher Ash, who is a scholar that wrote a recent, well-respected uh, commentary on the book of Job, he says that the book of Job is 95% poetry. Poetry. And here's the thing about poetry. It is not proposition. See, some of you think of the Bible as, you know, here's this thing and here's this truth and do this thing and don't do this thing and here's what this means. And, and while, like, you know, especially the, like the letters of Paul or other areas definitely are like that, poetry is completely different. Poetry takes time. Poetry takes imagination. Poetry takes, you know, you on a journey. You have to sit with it. And actually, poetry can mess you up. Christopher Ash says, Job is a fireball book. It is a staggeringly honest book. It is a book that knows what people actually say and think, not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers. And it knows what we say in our tears. It is not merely an academic book. If we listen to it carefully, it will touch us, trouble us, and unsettle us in a deep way. So as we get ready to embark on this journey through the book of Job, a few months through the book of Job, I want you to think about this. The book of Job is not about Job. It's about God. The book of Job is actually about God. And in fact, the book of Job is not just about suffering, it's about God. Like Job's suffering is kind of a springboard into the bigger question of, God, how exactly are you running the world? What, is, what does it mean to think that God is just and yet there's so much injustice in the world? In fact, uh, Tremper Longman, close personal friend, just kidding, maybe you know that joke, and, and, and John Walton wrote in their book, uh, How to Read Job, they write... Job goes through trials, but God and his policies are on trial. So let's keep that in mind as we study the book of Job these next few months. Let me just pray, and then we're going to dive into the first five verses of the book of Job. I'll say this too. We're going to go slowly at first, and then we're going to speed up dramatically. We won't be able to read every single verse in the book of Job just for the sake of time, and because a lot of the arguments are cyclical and repetitive. So we'll go kind of faster, and then we'll slow back down again at the end. So that's just to kind of help you understand and wrap your mind around what we're doing here in this season. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help me. Help me to communicate clearly and truthfully about what it is you're saying in these first five verses. And Lord Jesus, would you make yourself and your gospel and your grace known to us here in these words? Even though they were written so long before your birth and life and death and resurrection, we see you in these pages. So help us see you. Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts and help us to receive what it is you want to give to us today. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.
So last week I had a conversation on the phone with a member of Sound City Bible Church and, and this individual, this woman, this younger woman called me up and we were talking about a new relationship that she was in and this relationship and she's in and they're, they're kind of talking about things and, and she was calling me and a few other people to seek godly and wise counsel, which is awesome because she was having a hard time with this gentleman figuring out, you know, What's the status of our relationship? And now people call me sometimes because I'm a pastor and, and because I've been married for actually quite a while. My wife and I, we, we just celebrated our 19th anniversary recently, a couple weeks ago. So 19 years married. And actually we dated for all four years of high school before that, which means we were 14 years old when we met. And when I say we, we got married right out of high school, I mean like, like 20 minutes right out of high school. Okay. Like right out of high school. And so people call me like, oh, like relationship advice and you're a pastor and you've got a longer, you know, marriage, especially for someone who's a bit younger and, and that's all well and good. But here's the problem. I have nothing to offer in terms of dating advice, like almost nothing. <laughs> now that's not completely true. I have nothing to offer from personal experience because we were, you know, infants, toddlers when we were arranged in our marriage. But I do know this. I do know this. It's really important to define the relationship. What are we doing here? How are we going to get along? What, what sort of parameters do we have around this relationship? Are we, are we just friends? Are we an exclusive relationship that's heading towards marriage with intentionality? What kind of boundaries and safeguards are we going to put around the practices in our dating and our marriage and our relationship, I should say, leading to marriage? You know, what is it that our relationship is? You got to define the relationship. Now, this is a silly analogy, but, but, Really think about this. When it comes to our relationship with God, how do we define the relationship? I, I've told this story before. Those of you from Sound City will have to forgive me if you heard this. But I, one time I sat on an airplane and it came up in conversation. I was a pastor. I, I might have been reading my Bible. I might have just been so holy feeling, you know, that the guy just had to ask me about it. That's a joke. But, you know, we, it came up in conversation. He was asking me, you know, okay, uh, you know, tell me about your pastoring. Tell me about whatever. And we were talking. And at one point in the conversation, the guy goes, well, you know, me and God, we've got an arrangement worked out. We've got an arrangement worked out. Okay, how do we define the relationship? So the, the word I want to put before you today when it comes to defining the relationship with God is this. It's the word covenant. It's the word covenant. We in 21st century American church have not always done a good job, particularly in Baptist or Baptistic non-denominational churches. We have not done a good job of really defining and understanding what covenant is. And so that's what I want to center things around today. And you'll see why this is so important in just a moment here. So let's, let's dive in. Verse one, there was a man in the country of Uts, Uz, but Uts, if you want to be accurate and pretentious, uh, and his name was Job. He was a man of complete integrity, he feared God. He turned away from evil. Now, he had seven sons and three daughters. That's a lot of kids. That's 10 kids. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. And I think that's yoke as in pairs. So 1,000 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and, you know, a very large number of servants. Like, you know, I, I counted the donkeys, but the human servants, I didn't have time to count, but just a lot of them. <laughs> Job was the greatest man among the people of the East. 
let's talk about three things. Let's talk about Job's setting. Let's talk about Job's integrity. And let's talk about Job's concern. Okay, Job's setting. His setting is not in the land of Israel. It says explicitly that he's in the land of Uts and he's of the people of the East, what sometimes is referred to in the Bible as the Transjordan region. Now, we do not know as far as archaeology and biblical scholarship goes, we just don't know where the land of Uts is. There's other places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where the land of Uts is mentioned, and it's tied to the lands of Edom and Moab, which are kind of northeast. So, so maybe somewhere up there, but we just don't know. The point is, not in Israel. And what about the setting as far as time? So in the land, it's not in the land of Israel. What about the time? Like, what era does this take place in? And, and as you read it, this this list of possessions is meant to trigger something for you, the reader, to understand this is a long time ago. See, Job's a really rich man. He's a really wealthy man, but his wealth is not measured in terms of coins and currency. It's measured in terms of possessions, sheep, goats, camels, oxen, etc. If you read in the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, you, you could encounter two different figures. Let's say Abraham and Solomon. Very roughly, Abraham, 2000 BC. Very roughly, Solomon, 1000 BC. Solomon, when it talks about all of his wealth, it says things like he had this much gold and this much silver and this much bronze and he had cedar and he had ostriches and there's animals and things like that. Like, not like uh, beasts of burden or useful things like ostriches and birds and whatever. When you read about Abraham, 2000 BC, Abraham, it says this kind of stuff, camels and, and oxen and donkeys. And so we are meant to get the idea that this is a long time ago in a galaxy, a land far, far away. This is in the land of Uts. This is a long time ago. This is in the patriarchal period. And this is, this is actually, uh, there's a clue here in the language as well. I, I am no expert in the biblical languages. I have done study in them in seminary, but I'm not an expert. But scholars who I read and respect, they say that the language in Job is kind of confusing because there's really old-fashioned sounding language, but there's also some really newer sort of language, like Aramaic sort of language, which is really late, like, you know, seven, six, five hundred BC. But then there's like all this old fashioned language, like it's meant to sound old. The the language, the Hebrew language that this the, the book is written in, it's like the author is trying to make you think of like old fashioned times. It made me think of you remember in nineteen ninety six when they made that movie of Romeo and Juliet starring Leonardo DiCaprio and um what's her name? Claire Danes. And it's like they're driving around in cars and they're shooting glocks and it's like all this modern sort of stuff. And yet they're saying, you know, old-fashioned Shakespearean sort of English. It's meant to make you think of an older time. So it might have been written later, but the setting is very old. And this is really important. This is actually more important than you realize. It's one of those details sometimes when we're reading the Bible that we just skip over. We don't realize how important it is. There's a scholar named James Bejon. He, uh, he's with Tyndale uh, currently as a scholar in residence. And actually, I follow him on Twitter. And he back in like February, he started tweeting all of this stuff about the book of Job. He was, he was reading through it and he started tweeting and stuff. And so I started interacting with him on Twitter. And he ended up emailing me all of these notes that he has, all of his scholarly notes that he has in the book of Job. What a time to be alive, friends. You can get a hold of your favorite nerd Bible scholar guys on Twitter just with a simple Click of the button. And so in his notes, he says this. 
He says, the fact that Job is set in patriarchal times is an important detail, since it explains Job and his friends' method of inquiry. As Job and his friends sit on the plain of Uts and seek to process what has happened, they don't have a clear revelation from God to work with, nor do they have a specific covenant or promise in which they can ground their debate. Come back to this more in a minute, but the point is the setting is very old. We're not in the land of Israel. We're not in the time of, you know, the law of Moses having been given. We're in a time that's kind of outside of the administration of the covenants of God in many ways. Let's keep going. Job's integrity. Look back here in verse one. This is another really important thing we need to understand about the book of Job if we're to really grasp its message. It says this, Job was a man of complete integrity. He feared God. He turned away from evil. Now, as we go through the book of Job, his friends are going to show up and they're going to say things like, you must be suffering because you did something wrong. And there's this big fight. One of the, one of the, the strands of the argument between Job and his friends is, Job saying, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong to deserve all this suffering. And the friends being like, you must have. You must have done something wrong. You're suffering. Therefore, you must be wicked. Now, we need to understand, though, that right out of the gate, we are told that Job is a man of complete integrity. And, and God himself is going to back this up. God himself, chapter one, chapter two, God is going to say, you know, to the Satan, and we're going to get to that later, uh, if you considered my servant Job, he's a man of complete integrity. Now, some translations will render it and say Job was perfect. And this stresses Christians out because we have been taught, rightly so, that only Jesus is perfect. And that is true. Job doesn't claim to be perfect, as in sinless. In fact, in chapter 13, he talks about, you know, the iniquities of my youth, the bad decisions and the, the sinfulness that I, you know, the things that I've done that I'm just not proud of. But the point is that Job is a man of integrity. The Hebrew word is tom, and it sometimes is translated as complete or, or whole. Like, like what you see is what you get. If you were to go through Job's browser history, you wouldn't be shocked by anything that you found. You know, if you were to go look through the records of his used camel lot, you wouldn't find him to be different than the other used camel salesmen in that he's a man of complete integrity. And this is really important for understanding the book of Job because he doesn't deserve the suffering that he's about to go through. You and I know, and this again, we're going to explore this in depth in weeks to come, but some suffering is deserved. You, you drink a bunch of alcohol, you get behind the wheel of a car, you wrap your car around a telephone pole. That's on you, dummy. Job hasn't done anything to deserve this suffering. He is a man of complete integrity. We might say he's a really good guy. Some, maybe you, you know some people like that. Just a really good person. Somebody who loves a lot, somebody who gives a lot, somebody who cares a lot. Now, Job is not sinless. And in fact, as we go through Job, we're going to see as he suffers, he starts to say some pretty not good things about God. But we are to believe these verses when it says he's a man of complete integrity. Okay, 
The third part, Job's concern or Job's worry. Pick it up in verse four with me. His sons, all seven of them, used to take turns. Actually, by itself, that sounds great. Don't, those of you who have sons, don't you wish they would take turns? But what they would take turns doing is having banquets at their homes. So these are adult sons. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. These are fun banquets, we'll just say. We'll leave it at that. Now, whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, and he would even rise early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular practice. Now, there is something really precious about what we see here. There's something really precious about Job rising up early in the morning to pray for and to sacrifice on behalf of his children. Uh, Pastor Doug's favorite preacher, second favorite preacher, his favorite preacher is John Corson. In John Corson's commentary, he talks about one of the, the most profound ministries that those of us who are parents can have is to get up early in the morning and just pray for our kids. You don't realize how uh, profound that is. So there's something really beautiful and there's something really precious about Job's heart in all of this. Again, a man of complete integrity. He's not only looking out for his own well-being, he's trying to take care of his kids. That's beautiful. But friends, if we're honest, there's something a little bit anxious about this. Rising up early in the morning, saying, perhaps, maybe, I don't even know, my children have sinned. Maybe it's just in their hearts. Maybe they didn't even do anything, but just in their own hearts. Like there's something about Job that's a little bit anxious, that's a little bit frantic, that's a little bit, you know, guesswork. And, and, and I just want to submit to you, it's this. Again, there's no covenant. Okay, I've used this word covenant a number of times. Let's spend a few minutes, if you'll allow me, to really unpack this because it is such an important word. It is such an important word and it's such a misunderstood word. The word covenant in our culture, people think of it maybe as like something spooky, a covenant, like a, is that like a witch's coven or like, it's a coven, not a covenant, but it's like, it's something spooky, like a blood covenant, or maybe even worse, it's something really boring, like your CCNRs, your community covenants and restrictions, that binder that you set up on the shelf of your garage so that you don't have to look at it because it's so boring because it says things like you can't rebuild a boat motor in your front lawn for two and a half years. It's things like that, right? Covenant. But actually, I, I even think that in uh, more Baptist and Baptistic non-denominational type of churches such as ours, we really misunderstand the word covenant all the time and we we kind of get it wrong. We, we maybe overly spiritualize it because when we hear about covenant it's it's jesus and the new covenant in his blood which is all completely true but but i just want to ask you for a minute could we just try to put ourselves in the mindset of of this ancient world and, and think about this the word covenant was a completely normal everyday sort of a word it was a really normal everyday word in that time and in that part of the world we might use the word contract 
you know, recently I, up, I upgraded my cell phone and I had to sign a contract about my cell phone, right? It's just, it's pretty normal. Even though that word might have connotations, a contract killer. Okay, it's just a contract. I just signed a contract. In, in the ancient world, they would use the language of, co- uh, cov- of bleh, covenant, not contract. And really the big difference between the two is a contract, you're agreeing to terms. You know, you get out the pen, you sign on the dotted line, it's terms. With a covenant, you're agreeing to a relationship. The word for covenant in Hebrew is berit. And actually it's related to the word to cut. See, when you would make a covenant, we, when we make a contract, we, we spill some ink. We sign on the dotted line. When they would make a covenant, they would spill some blood. They would cut an animal in half and, and the blood would be spilled and that would be the, the sign and the indication that the covenant had been agreed upon by both parties. Actually, it's interesting. We still use the language of let's cut a deal. Let's cut a deal. Cut. What are we cutting about this deal? Next time you have a business meeting, you know, I dare you. I don't, no, I don't dare you. I don't, I don't actually want you to do that. Walter Elwell, a Bible scholar in the, uh, uh, the Evangelical Bible Dictionary, says this, a covenant is just simply, it's simply this, an arrangement between two parties involving mutual obligations. It's, a, it's an agreement with mutual obligations. Again, try to demystify it a little bit. In, in the Old Testament, the word covenant was used in an ordinary human sense. Ordinary human sense, I like that. As well as in a theological sense. Actually, an understanding of human covenants provides a starting point for understanding the covenant between God and human beings. So let me talk about divine covenants in a moment, just really briefly. There's a lot of examples in the Bible of just human covenants. One of the things I hear sometimes as a pastor, particularly at Sound City Bible Church, we talk about covenant membership, and I have got no shortage of pushback over the years on that word covenant. People say things like, well, covenant's just between me and God. But friends, that's just biblically indefensible. Biblically indefensible because there's a lot of examples of covenant between humans. Political alliances, Abraham and Abimelech, the king, like in Genesis 21, or King Solomon and Hiram of Tyre in in 1 Kings 5. Uh, uh, Leaders, not just kings and political alliances, but just various leaders making alliances. Like in 2 Samuel 5, when King David makes a covenant with the elders of Israel, these tribal leaders. There's covenants between leaders and just the people they lead, like in 2 Kings 11 when Jehoiada makes a covenant with the people. There's covenants just with groups of people, just random groups of people, like in 2 Chronicle 15 when the people of Israel covenanted together. There's even covenant language used in, in terms of like a personal vow. Actually, it's in the book of Job, Job chapter 31. Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes to not gaze upon a young woman. The implication being lustfully. It's like, it's like he's saying, I'm, I'm making a personal vow. It's almost like he's saying, I've made a New Year's resolution to not look lustfully upon a young woman. So a personal vow covenant language is used. Friendship. David and Jonathan in in 1 Samuel 18, friendship is spoken of as being covenantal. And then, yes, of course, marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife in in Malachi 2.14. Some of you would be surprised, though, how little 
marriage is spoken of in covenantal language. It is there, but covenant is often, most commonly, about God and man, but oftentimes it's used in just political alliances and human alliances. The, the, the point of this is that covenant is just like this normal word. It's a normal word about an agreement, but the distinction is a contract is terms. Covenant is a person. I'm committing to terms. No, no, no. I'm committing to you. And that serves as the backdrop for the divine covenants. And there's a series of these divine covenants that God shows up and makes with mankind. Now, he doesn't have to, but in his grace, he does. He makes terms of agreement. He he defines the relationship. God makes a covenant with Adam. The word covenant is not explicitly used in Genesis, but it is used in the prophets referring back to that scene where it says God created the man and the woman— And their obligation is to fill the earth, to to multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. And God's obligation is to give people life and food and all things good and glorious. After they sinned and after they fell and after God flooded the earth to cleanse it and to restart, God makes a covenant with Noah. And Noah's obligation is to repopulate and to refill the earth and to subdue it. And God's obligation is, I'm never going to flood the earth like that again. It doesn't go so well and time goes on and then God chooses Abraham and, and he chooses Abraham to make a special, a particularly special covenant. The family of Abraham, God says, will be his chosen instrument to bring, to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as multiple, you know, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham, what your obligation is, is don't worship or follow any other God. Exclusive loyalty to me. God makes a covenant with Moses and with the people of Israel through Moses, where he says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I've already brought you out of slavery in the land of Egypt. All I want you to do is the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all. And friends, we can joke about that. Like that's, that's burdensome. What a, what a thick and incredibly heavy covenant. But what a joy it is for the people of Israel who had been languishing in slavery to know what God expects of them. It's to define the relationship sort of a thing. And then the other big, covenant we see between God and man is the covenant with David where God says to David, David, I'm always going to have one of your descendants ruling over my people. You will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And what I demand from you is exclusive covenant loyalty. See friends, All of God's covenants are good, and we read about these covenants in the pages of Scripture, but one of the major problems in the book of Job, as as James Bajon pointed out in that quote I read to you earlier, is that they don't know. Maybe Job and his friends know about God's covenant with Adam, and maybe they know about God's covenant with Noah. It's highly doubtful that they know about God's covenant with Abraham, and it is 100% impossible that they know about the, the Mosaic covenant or the Davidic covenant since it's before that time. They just don't know. They don't live in Israel. They don't have the law of God. And so Job and his friends are left with guesswork and speculation, and Job is left running around 
trying to offer sacrifices on behalf of his sons and daughters, perhaps in the case, I don't even know. Maybe they sinned against God. Maybe they just did it in their hearts. I don't even know. Friends, how blessed are we? Now, as we read the book of Job, we just have to remember, we know more than they do. And this is not chronological snobbery. This is actually the literary point of this early chapter of Job. They don't have a covenant. Now, there are some things, though, to indicate that while Job and his friends, while Job in particular here, does not operate within the covenantal framework, he does have relationship with God. There's one thing, I don't have time to explore this right now, but there is one thing that's really, really interesting. Throughout the book of Job, the friends always use generic names for God. Elohim, El, Elion. They use more generic, impersonal. You know, we say like God. We can use that word God in a pretty impersonal sort of way. Only Job, and the narrator, but only Job uses the name Yahweh the personal, relational, covenantal name of God. So even though Job is not an Israelite, even though he doesn't live under the Mosaic covenant and the administration where God revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush, somehow Job knows the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Job calls God Yahweh. And what's more is Job knows, he knows that When there's sin, there needs to be a sacrifice. So so Job is operating outside of the formal covenantal structure with God, but, but boy, he sure seems to actually know God. He uses his covenantal name, and he knows that when sin has occurred, there needs to be a sacrifice. Now, this is interesting because... There's a little bit of a myth sometimes. I've heard this sometimes growing up in the church that this myth of, of a covenant, you know, one of the differences between a contract and a covenant, contracts can be broken, covenants can't be broken. I heard that sometimes growing up in youth group and things. And I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but covenants get broken kind of a lot. Like kind of constantly are the covenants that God makes with people broken. And when the covenant is broken, there needs to be some sort of sacrifice. There needs to be some sort of a thing that is done to make up for the covenant unfaithfulness. That's why in the pages of Leviticus in particular, God in the covenant spells out the terms for sacrifice so that when the people inevitably break the covenant, their sins can be atoned for. But it's this exhausting, ongoing, perpetual cycle of sacrifice, repentance, forgiveness, sacrifice, per- for, uh, repentance, forgiveness, just on and on and on. Covenant is, is there, but it's really quite tiresome. And after just centuries of this kind of story of just covenant unfaithfulness and people violating the covenant of God, God sends a prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah lives right around the time of the exile when the people were removed from the land because of their covenantal unfaithfulness. And in Jeremiah chapter one, God speaks through this prophet and he says, look, the days are coming when I'm gonna make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
It's not going to be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This is going to be a different sort of covenant. I've got something new up my sleeve, God is saying. This is my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. See, covenants can be broken. Instead, this is the covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them. I'm going to write it straight onto their hearts. God's saying, I'm going to go right into the innermost being of who my people are, and I'm going to create within them a desire to want to follow my law. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the same language from the Mosaic covenant. So some things are going to be new. Some things are never going to change. It's still relationship with God. No longer will one person teach his neighbor or his brother saying, you should know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration for I will forgive give their iniquity and never again remember their sin. I'm not going to hold it against them. God's omniscient. He can't forget your sin. He knows all things. But when he says, I'm not going to remember, it means I'm not going to treat you as though that ever happened. What a great promise. If only Job had known about this promise of this new covenant that was coming, this, this new covenant that would, that would offer some sort of sacrifice to deal with iniquity once and for all so Job wouldn't have to be nervous, so Job wouldn't have to, perhaps my children have sinned, I guess I better get up early and offer sacrifices. No, there's a new covenant coming that's going to define the relationship in such clear terms that your heart is going to be completely turned inside out and you're going to want to obey and you're going to get it. Now, friends, you know where I'm going with this. If you know anything about Jesus at all, you know that when he showed up on the scene, he claimed to be fulfilling this prophecy from Jeremiah. In Luke chapter 22, he took some bread and he, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took this, the cup and he, he, after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant. He says it. It's the new covenant written in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, Jesus shows up on the scene and says, listen, I am here to enact the new covenant, the, the better covenant that God promised. You don't need to worry about your sins and your iniquities anymore I'll pay the penalty for it. I will be crucified. I will die on a cross. I will be cut. I will be berit for you so that you can know that your sins are atoned for, that your iniquities are cleansed. And I will rise again from the dead on the third day to prove to you that you can have new life, everlasting life, eternal life if you just place your trust in in me. And if you place your trust in me, I'll put a new heart within you. You won't have to go to some guru or some, some mystic to teach you about how to follow me. I'm just going to rewrite your heart. I'm going to turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and I'm going to make you want to follow me. And what Jesus says is all that I ask for is your entire life. That's it. All I ask for is complete and utter surrender. Pick up your cross, lay down your life, and follow me. 
Job had to wonder about, do I need to make a sacrifice? Is this okay? We don't have to wonder because Jesus was sacrificed once and for all for us. Job, as we're going to see, wonders when he suffers. Did I do something wrong? Is God mad at me? And friends, when we suffer, we don't have to wonder. There might be many reasons why we suffer, but it's not because God's mad at us. Because all of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus at the cross. It's done. It's finished. There's no more sacrifices needed. Nothing else is needed. We can know that we have right standing before God. We can define the relationship with God because he has defined it for us. And friends, the terms of the covenant are grace. This is such good news. This is such good news. I actually saved my big idea for the very end. All of God's covenants are good. We've got the very best one. There's never been a bad covenant that God made with his people. But as the author of Hebrews reminds us, we've got the ultimate one. We've got the superior one, the very best covenant that could possibly ever be had because it's written in the blood of Jesus, not in the blood of bulls and goats and animals. It's a perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus is fully God, he can offer us the perfect terms of the divine covenant. And because he's fully man, he can actually uphold our end of the bargain, live a perfect life, die in our place for our sins, rise again, fulfill our end of the covenant. The mutual obligations of the covenant are fulfilled in Jesus. Let's grab a hold of him by faith. Briefly, by way of application, here's what we're going to do. When you hear this about, about the ultimate covenant we have, we have the best covenant given to us in the blood of Jesus, the first thing we ought to do is we ought to be confident. Job's got some anxiety and some worry running around. Maybe this, perhaps that, I don't know. Friends, we need to have confidence. You are loved by God. If you have responded by faith, then you're secure. Jesus says no one can, can snatch you out of the grip of the palm of his hand. You are secure in him. Yes, we, we make blunders. Yes, we sin. Yes, we, we stumble. But Jesus' grace is bigger than our sin. There's no sacrifice that we need to offer. The work is complete. Let's have some confidence. Number two, let's be thankful. Let's be thankful. I mean, for crying out loud, Job, and as we're going to see his friends, they just don't have a covenantal structure to work with. We've got the best covenantal structure to work with. We've defined the relationship. We didn't do it. He did it. It's not like my buddy on the plane. I've got an agreement worked out with God. Like, no, God showed up and said, I've got an agreement for you. And it's way better than that fool on the plane tried to say. Like, this is the most amazing covenant. The terms of relationship have been defined. Again, it's grace. Let's be thankful. Let's be confident. Let's be thankful. And then friends, let's be loyal. One of the things that we can learn from Job and we can emulate about him is his loyalty to God most high. Job's loyalty to God is amazing. How much more should ours be? If we have a better covenant, we should be more loyal. We should not play around with the idols of our heart. We should not, you know... Uh, uh, just give place to our own sinful desires and wishes. We've got to be loyal to God. 
because we have a covenant written in the blood of Jesus. And he was loyal to us, even to the point of death. He was faithful. So let's be loyal to him. Let's be, let's be confident. Let's be thankful. And let's be loyal. God, I pray that you would help us to respond now in faith to you. Lord, as we respond, whether it's the celebration of the Lord's table or through singing or through acts of service and love to our neighbor, Lord, would we respond with thanksgiving, knowing that you have given us the ultimate and perfect covenant. Lord, would we respond with great confidence, knowing that we don't have to guess about what it is you require, all that you have required, you've provided in Jesus. And Lord, would you help us to live out covenant loyalty to you. We pray this all because of what Jesus did for us. Amen.